Thank you so much. We've got Rob as well. The tag team preaching. In fact, Rob, here are my notes. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, let me just tip this back a little bit. Today, it's a day of possibility, isn't it? It's a day of what might happen. It's a day where many of us are daring to dream. Um, even the Queen's getting in on it. Have you seen? She's like getting behind the England national team and thinking maybe this is our year. Today could be our day. After 55 years of waiting, as, as the song goes, 55 years of hurt, hope is starting to rise. And all the emotions are here as well, aren't they? There's the, there's the hope. There's even among some of the bold, there's expectation of what might happen. Uh, but for most people, it is shredded nerves and just downright fear as to what might happen at eight o'clock tonight. But we feel all of these things and we are experiencing it all because we have been drawn into a narrative, the narrative of so many years of disappointment and so many years of expectation that the England national team will fail at football and suddenly there's a, 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 an uptick in things and things look very different. And we, we all love to be drawn into a story, don't we? We love to be drawn into a narrative and have things start to build up and plot and different threads and lines might be going this way and it starts to get your mind worrying where might this be going what might happen next whether it's a box set that you just can't say no to the next episode as Netflix automatically starts it again that evil device that it does and suddenly it's 2am in the morning or whether it's a, a thriller a book that you just cannot put down and you, you just gotta know what happens and so you just find yourself turning page after page after page or whether it is following the footballing juggernaut that is Gareth Southgate's England national team at this year's Euros but anti-climax Anticlimax is a terrible thing, isn't it? That when you've invested so much of your time and your emotional energy and all of the promise and the build-up, and then you just get met with a, a dull, duff, unsatisfying ending. It's just awful, isn't it? I mean, fans of Italian football will testify it to tomorrow. Anticlimax, you just don't like it. Uh, we've actually got quite a number of Italian nationals in the building right now, and I am, I'm getting smiles, I think. I can't see behind the mask, but I think they're with me. But on first look, the end of the Book of Ruth very much seems to have that feeling of, of anti-climax, or at least it's kind of odd. It doesn't quite fit with the rest of the narrative. The last six weeks, we have been swept up in one of the most beautiful, inspiring, compelling narratives that you can find in all of Scripture, maybe all of literature, some would say. We've been drawn into this beautiful human drama and these, these rich characters interacting with one another. There's been ups, there's been downs, there's been twists, there's been turns. But last week, we started to see maybe this is just coming to a, a satisfying conclusion. Maybe all of the threads are going to come together in a way that just brings joy to our hearts. And now we're just left thinking, is in the final paragraph, well, how is the author going to sign this off? How is he going to end with one last stylistic flourish that just leaves us as the readers enthralled and enchanted all over again. And what the author gives us is something that can seem very hard to get excited by on first reading. But as we conclude this series today, 
I want to finish it with a message that I'm calling, look what God has done. Is there anything I need to do differently to stop the buzzing? Robin says no. He's saying I'm doing things perfectly by the shake of that head. Two thumbs up. As we end this series, we're going to see actually this end opens our eyes to seeing, really to make us as the readers marvel once again at God and marvel at what he has done and how the sovereign provision and looking after his people goes far deeper and far wider than we could have imagined on first reading. And I hope my aim as we unpack this together this morning is that we will once again just look at God and marvel at him and be able to see, look what he has done all over again. So we're going to read from verse 11, just to give us a bit of lead up. So it's a bit of overlap with what Robin looked at last, last week. So verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, um, just to give us a bit of lead up to the bit that's a bit odd towards the end. But it will become clear. Then all the people should be appearing behind me just as we go. Then all the people who were at the gate. Oh, and this is um, the, the crowds are celebrating and talking about Boaz and Ruth getting engaged. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offering that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. Did you see the, the pregnancy theme that we've had already through our meeting? <laughs> gave her conception and she brought a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Or Salmon. Salmon Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Do you see how that doesn't quite end how you expect? Just a long list of names. That these are the bits in the Bible. I mean, I won't get hands up, but who has struggled when you've been perhaps reading through Bible in a year and you come to the chunk, you just made your way through Leviticus finally, and then you just are met with a wall of names. And it's hard to be like, oh, this is really encouraging. God is speaking directly into my life right now. It's difficult, isn't it? And particularly here, there's this beautiful story. I think, why is it ending with a list of names? This is not leaving me on a high. But if we look carefully, actually, we will see that the author has been building to something here. It's not just a dump of names at the end. The author's being intentional. From verse 11, he's doing a different thing, a new thing. That's my son, you can hear. So far in this narrative, we have been 
almost entirely focused on just individual people. It's been an individual story, just three people, an intimate drama. But from verses 11 and 12, the horizons of this story just start to widen out. We see, verse 11, that it starts to talk about all of the people, that all of the people start to talk. Well, suddenly we've got a large group of people starting to address one another and, and the characters in our story. And they talk about Boaz being renowned in Ephrathah and Bethlehem. And the focus of the story goes from just these three individual people now to a whole region uh, is being drawn into the focus of the story. And with ma- mention, you might have caught there through, through the, what they were saying, Rachel and Leah and Tamar and Perez. These are their descendants. And they're drawing attention to the fact this is not an isolated story just out there on its own, but this is a building on all that has come before. This is a continuation of a story. And then the widening of the horizons continues as we go through verses 13 and 17. Again, we have the women speaking. So a group of people, we don't know how many, but a number of people all speaking. And they talk about this child being renowned in Israel. And so suddenly the focus on a region within Israel is expanded out even more to the whole of Israel. And then... We don't just hear about the ancestors and where this story has come from, but we start to learn where this story is going. In verse 17, they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Do you see how the, almost like the camera lens is zooming out and we're starting to see the expanse of where this story fits into? And when they would have heard at the end of verse 17, Jesse, then David. They would have, you can probably save that slide for just a moment if that's all right. When they heard that, they would have thought, hang on a sec. Jesse, then David. I know of a Jesse, then David. I've heard of a Jesse, then David. Surely you don't mean the same Jesse, then David that I'm thinking of when you say Jesse, then David. And it's almost like the author wants to say, yep, it's that. Jesse, then David. And so what he does is he wants to bring total clarity to his his hearers and the readers of this, to bring a much fuller family history, to set it precisely in the context in which it's in, so they do not miss it. As he repeats verse 22, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered Obed. You remember as we've looked through Ruth, We are to pay attention to the things that are repeated. The author's looking to put a particular emphasis on the things that come up, not just once, but twice or more times. And as we we had on that slide, you can stick it up. Verse 17 and verse 22, just to help us see just this repetition and this emphasis of Obed, Jesse, David. Obed, Jesse, David, twice. And as if that wasn't enough, the author then emphatically ends the story on the word David. The very last word of this story is David. He's saying, this story leads us to King David. As we've mentioned before, the book of Ruth, it's one of those that's quite hard to pin down. Who is it written to? Who is the original uh, audience? We don't actually know, but whoever it was in Israel's history 
King David was their hero. King David was revered and exalted and loved. He was not just a king that was in their history. He wasn't even just a good king that happened to be in their history. He was the king. He was the model king that they loved and longed for another one of him. He was the one that had conquered all of their enemies and had restored them or made them into a kingdom of peace. Just think, that free from the anxiety and the fear of, are we going to be invaded? Are we going to be conquered and have to go elsewhere or perhaps even be killed by another army? All of that gone because David was mighty. He was the one who had put them on the map. A leader that had led them into fame and renown and glory. Through David, this nation had become a mighty nation. And here we see this is where he had come from. This is not an end that has a kind of happily ever after. We might have just expected to watch them all walking off into the sunset at the end of the story. This end almost reframes the whole story. Saying underneath and underlying all that we have read, God was at work not just providing for these individuals, God was at work building a kingdom. This is a a short, punchy series. Uh, Sorry, short, punchy story, short, punchy series. And the the listeners would have heard it in just one sitting. They would have sat down with their cup of coffee and just heard it read out in one go. And so when this surprise ending lands, still fresh in their mind, is where this story would have started. They would still be able to picture, if you were with us on week one, Naomi right at the beginning in that foreign land of Moab where she loses everything, emptied of her family, no food, a widow, fragile, alone in a foreign country. They'd be able to remember her all the way out there, away from God's purposes. The very last thing you are thinking of at that point in the the narrative is, yep, This looks like the very center point of God's plans and purposes to build himself a mighty kingdom and to establish a prospering nation and establish an empire for himself. Now, as we saw in week one, all of the dramatic tension at that point, when we saw Naomi right at the beginning is, is this woman even going to survive? Surely she is about to go the way of her own, the rest of her family. She loses her name in the author's reckoning, and it just looks like she's going to die. She's going to waste away. She's going to fade. But the big reveal here at the end of the book is, without this frail old widow out there in Moab, the vast, expansive kingdom would never have come about. This woman that none of us would have given even a second glance to is central and indispensable to the purposes and the plans of God. God is committed to using the vulnerable. God is committed to using the overlooked, committed to using the foolish things of this world to shame the strong in order to build his kingdom and advance his purposes. Why? So that when we get to an end of a story like this, we don't think, wow, Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth, good strategic thinkers, weren't they? I mean, you knew what they were doing. They had, the end, they had the kingdom in mind. No, we 
look at this so that without hesitation, God works this way so that we just look and think, look what God has done. Look how he worked it. In fact, if you wanted to summarize the whole book of Ruth in just one sentence, I think a pretty good start would just be, look what God has done. Look how he worked it. There's only two verses in the whole book that say the Lord did this, that directly the Lord's involvement was in it. But crucially, they come right at the beginning of the book, chapter one, when God brings them food. And then right at the end of the book, chapter four, when Lord provides a child. And this is a technique that the author is using to kind of bookend the whole narrative and saying, okay, you only see it directly at the beginning, at the end, but that means that everything in between, the Lord's hand of sovereign provision was all over it, all along. And then here, final, a final dramatic moment, the author wants to get us to look again and just behold, look at God at work. Look how he's able to take the vulnerable, the fragile, and he'll go beyond just keeping that person alive, beyond just bringing that person back into safety, beyond even saving their family line. In his great sovereignty and his power, he will bring them in to use them to be a vital, essential part to build his kingdom and to get glory for himself in his mission. And that is exactly our story as a church. That when we arrived here in Manchester, just two and a half years ago, we were vulnerable and we were fragile. We were 10 people, 10 people or so, turning up in a city that we did not know at all. We didn't know anybody, we didn't come with any name, we weren't able to, like, I don't know, put on a concert or something like that to attract interest and to get our name out. They were just a people in a house. And I'd never say this publicly, but we had no idea what we were doing. And we said, oh, we're going to start a church in our living room. And that church is going to impact a city. I mean, it's just nuts. You think that's not going to work. Surely that is doomed to failure. Surely that's just going to fade away and die and go into insignificance. Absolutely. Were it not for the divine providence and sovereignty of God, were it not for the fact that God was in it, he had spoken it into being and he had called us and said, I am going to make it happen and I am going to do it. If it wasn't for the fact that God uses people just like us, to advance his kingdom and to advance his plans and his purposes, of course it would have failed. But through him, he has saved people, he's healed people, he's grown us as disciples and followers of him, he's grown us as a family. We just have to look at the evidence of the last year and a bit to see the marks of God being with us. We have, without being able to really meet for most of it in person, he has grown us as a family significantly. I mean, we're almost double in size what we were before the pandemic started. And he has, as everywhere was shut, found us a new venue. Not just a new venue, he's found us a new home. Somewhere that we can move into, settle down, put our roots into, to fulfill the mission he's called us to. 
Not so that we can, you know, pat ourselves on the back and think, oh, we're very good at this, aren't we? Good at, good at church building. We know what we're doing. I mean, yeah, of course, there's been hard work. There's been sacrificial giving. There has been careful, thoughtful, hopefully godly wisdom that goes into things that we do. But ultimately, all of this is so that we can take a step back, look at God and say, look what he has done amongst us. Look what he has accomplished through us. He has chosen to advance his kingdom through us, who have no idea really what we're doing, but he is at work through us, through fragile, vulnerable us. He's gone beyond just, I'm going to keep this church plant alive. He's made us into an essential, vital component in his plans to redeem Manchester and so restore this nation and to save the world. That's what he's called us to. We see him here take something so weak and through it, through her, build something extraordinary, a kingdom. I think this is one of the greatest lessons that we can take from this whole book, is that God is able to build something totally extraordinary, and he does it, if you've been following through the series, through perhaps the most ordinary way that you could possibly think. I think today in our culture and in our society, we are so trained now to only really pay attention to that which is noticeable. For something to grab our attention, it has to be, has to be new, it has to be novel, it has to be viral, it has to be big, it has to be shiny. At least for me anyway. Maybe, maybe the rest of you are different. Maybe I'm just like a child. But it, it has to be something that really is going to grab our attention. And because that is now how we think about everything... That is also how we think more and more, I think, about mission. I think it's so, so subtle, but I think what starts to get into our head is if we want to do something valuable in the kingdom of God, well, the only people that really do something of real worth are those that can do the extraordinary for the mega gifted and for the mega charismatic, that if you really want to do anything of effect in God's kingdom, you've got to have this great communication gift as a very baseline. That's where you've got to start from. You've got to have a podcast that literally everybody is talking about. You've got to have this on-point social media presence where you are putting out content that is hilarious and engaging and impactful and authentic all at once. And you've got to be able to have an opinion on literally everything that is going on and speak with total clarity into complex social issues. And if you can't do all of those things, don't really bother. That that's what the real work looks like to many of us. We can start to believe it and to think that the rest of us, well, really, we're just sort of spectators or kind of doing a little bit, maybe, to advance God's kingdom. But when you look at the book of Ruth as a whole... You cannot escape just how ordinary it all is. I mean, just think of some of the settings that you find them in. They're harvesting. I mean, that might sound fun and novel to us, but for them, I mean, it was the most everyday thing that you could possibly do. There's, there's harvesting, they're threshing, they're gleaning. They're people that are falling in love with people and people that are looking for people to marry they're families having arguments. I mean, how normal is that? 
And then in the context of all of this normality, kind of mundanity, the things that they do are just so simple. Just Ruth, just committing her loyalty to Naomi. Just saying, I'm just going to choose to be with you, and to love you and be for you forever. It's so simple. Boaz, just saying, I am just going to generously welcome this foreigner, Ruth, into this new place. I mean, she's a bit different to me. don't really understand her. I'm sure she doesn't quite understand me. It's a bit odd, but I'm just going to be generous. I'm just going to welcome her. I'm going to be hospitable towards her. So simple. Naomi showing Ruth and helping her to adapt and get used to this new culture that she finds herself in. And then Boaz just living his life, faithful, obedience, and integrity at every step. Just being faithful to who God's made him to be. That's all they do. They just have a couple of people in front of them that God has put in their life. And they just think, I'm simply just going to love them. I'm going to be good to them. I'm going to care for them. I'm going to live out ordinary faithfulness to these people that God has presented to me. And here we see huge impact. In 1735, a man called John Wesley was crossing the water from England to America on a boat. And at this point, John Wesley, he was not yet a Christian. And as he was crossing, a storm hit this boat. And the vast majority of people on this boat were English. And the English people on the boat, when the storm hit, began to freak out. They were screaming. They were panicking. And there you have it, 300 years ago, the English were cynical and pessimistic, just as they always have been. But the English were not the only people on the boat. There were Germans on the boat. Just a few. Some German Moravian Christians. And we can now draw the English-German distinction and the Germans doing well without feeling quite so bad about ourselves after a few weeks ago. And the Germans were just sat there. As everyone else was panicking, they were sat in the storm, and they just began singing worship songs. And John Wesley looked back on that and said that it was truly one of the most glorious moments of his life. And he asked them later, what, how did you just sit and sing? And they just said, none of us were afraid of dying. Because of the Christian hope that was in them, they just looked completely different. And they lived their life completely different. And John Wesley then saw that as a turning point in his life. He then gave his life to Jesus and went on to preach the gospel to thousands of people. You might know his story. Thousands of people at a time, tens of thousands of people over his lifetime, saw tens of thousands of people saved in his lifetime, established the Methodism movement, which was established in the UK, has now gone international. And over the years, millions, probably tens of millions of people's lives have been transformed and saved. An extraordinary man. But it only came about through ordinary faithfulness. Just a simple act. Singing on a boat. And the extraordinary came through. But this is exactly what Jesus promised us. When you think about what are the parables that Jesus spoke of, of, of his kingdom establishing. How did, he, how did he envision it and picture it? So many times he said it's like, it's like a seed in the ground growing. That's all he said. One time he talks about a mustard seed. 
the smallest, the most ordinary, the least significant, the least interesting, the least viral of all of the seeds. A mustard seed's never going to make it on TikTok. So don't make a video about it. And yet out of a mustard seed, a great tree will come, Jesus said. The vast, powerful, unstoppable kingdom of God out of just something so ordinary. And don't you think it's significant that here in our narrative of Ruth that this all comes right at the end? There's no hint of it, no, no mention that this might be coming. The fullness of God's plans hidden till right at the end. The whole way through it has just been mustard seed, mustard seed, mustard seed, mustard seed, just ordinary, ordinary, mundane, mundane, mundane. And then here right at the end, boom, great tree. And we see what God was doing all along. That's how we did it then. And that's how we do it today in Manchester. And my question for us, my my challenge for us perhaps, is that will we commit to just living out ordinary faithful lives and believe that is how God moves and does the extraordinary? In this time where so many of us, we want to be seen, we want to be noticed, we want to, uh, there's pressure on us perhaps to to be new, to be novel, to stand out, to establish ourselves as a brand, to live our lives out in public on social media. Will we choose to be unoriginal? Will we willingly choose obscurity and perhaps even a, a boring life, but a life of faithful obedience? as God asks us to do, that we might just think, look, God has given me these people in my life. And so I am just going to love them. I'm just going to bless them. I'm just going to be good to them. You might think that I've just got these three people in my life that I'm close with. Well, I am just going to commit every single day. I'm going to pray for them. I'm just going to give myself in prayer to these people, faithful, ordinary stuff, and believe that God will work through it. You might think that I I don't really see eye to eye with my mom. I find it quite difficult with her. But actually, God's given me her. She's put me in her her in my life. So I'm going to call her regularly. I'm going to encourage her. I'm going to love her. I'm going to send her gifts. I'm going to do whatever I can to bless her and believe that as I do, God might work. You might think, my boss winds me up. And my job is just so mind-numbing and I can't stand it. And it's just so boring and there's no incentive for me to do well. And I, I can't see it progressing anywhere. But actually, it might just be that God is calling you to be faithful there, to give yourself to it and believe and say, look, I'm just going to do my best because I trust that in these ordinary moments of faithfulness, God can do something extraordinary. He can build his kingdom through the very ordinary things that his people do. And just as we see the things in the book of Ruth, where there's repetition, it should grab our attention. So it is in the whole of scripture. And over a thousand years after this was set, we then see this exact same family line come up again in Matthew chapter one. We can have the slide up where we see exactly the same 
line appear. We see exactly the same names appear in exactly the same order. You don't, we're not going to read it all through, but you can see that exactly the same names, exactly the same order, almost exactly the same wording. And as we see this line again, just like the, the things in the book of Ruth that are repeated, they should grab our attention. The whole of the story of Ruth comes flying back to us as we see this written by Matthew in his gospel particularly in the bit where it says that Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. He wants to remind us of the individuals involved in this story. But whereas the book of Ruth ends emphatically just here, Jesse fathered David. David is the last word. David is the end of the story. In Matthew, he's showing us, actually, no, David is not the end of the story. He's the end of, of a story, but he's not the end of the story. In Matthew, this same family line continues. David fathered Solomon, who fathered Rehoboam, etc., etc. Ten verses, 25 names. And we see this whole intriguing beautiful story of Ruth in all of its complexity and all that we've seen going on and how God's been weaving it all together and working so so well in it was just a tiny portion just a little bit of the grand masterpiece that he has been painting and is painting these 10 verses 25 names as we go on we see where this story is headed in verse 16 Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This family line, right at the end of Ruth, this family line leads directly to Jesus Christ. Look what God has done. The image that we have of Naomi comes in verse 16 of chapter 4. It will appear on the screen just behind me. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Just a beautiful picture of a grandmother with her grandson. And finally, we see this woman who was empty made completely full. How? Because she has been able to welcome God's gift of a son. And as God was at work providing a son for Naomi to hold on her lap, he was also, we see here, making a way to provide a son for all the world. The emptiness of Naomi was filled by the arrival of this little baby, Obed. But in this same town, this little town of Bethlehem, 1,000 years later, the emptiness of the ages would be filled by the arrival of Jesus Christ. Were it not for Naomi, Ruth and Boaz that we've been watching so closely over these last six weeks or so, we would still be lost. We would still be empty. But because of them, through them, the gift of Jesus Christ has come. 
and in the gift of the son that we have received, we encounter God just like Naomi and Ruth encountered God. Jesus came into this world to enter right into our story, to enter right into the mess and the struggles and the challenges that we are facing each and every day, right into the very ordinary details of our lives to find us as empty people. And he fills our emptiness, not just with something that will fill us up, anything that might bring us up to the top, but he fills our emptiness with the very fullness himself. The one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Bethlehem, which literally means the house of bread, that he is at work in our individual lives, providing for us, giving us all we need. He's at work in the immediate circles that we come across and the people in our lives. He's at work in Manchester. He's at work beyond. He will build his kingdom. He will build his church. And he is inviting us to simply sit back, marvel at him, and say, look what God has done.